I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. Hope you are having a great week. Can't wait for you to hear this episode of the show. I know you're going to dig it. Um, I'm wondering if you, like LiveWire's announcer, Elena Passarello, and I have been watching this new Netflix docuseries called Wild Wild Country. We've been sort of obsessing over it a little bit, and so we were very excited that for this episode of LiveWire, we were actually able to get the filmmakers behind that show on the program. And the whole thing sort of got us thinking about the topic of true believers. And that's what we started off talking about when we were on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Take a listen to this. We've got uh, quite a show in store for you. Uh, we're going to be talking about true believers this hour. I grew up with a ton of true beliefs. I grew up in a really evangelical family. But in my adult life, I, I don't hold most of those beliefs, much to my mom's chagrin. <laughs> By the way, Elena, has your mom heard the show yet in South Carolina? No. Her little pocket of South Carolina, it doesn't come on the radio, so I'm like trying to get her to understand what the URL bar is so she can type in the podcast. We're working on it. We're working on it. She doesn't have any true beliefs. She's really? Like, she's like the, the Big Lebowski. It's like, we are nihilists. We believe in nothing. Yeah, you know, I realize I sort of don't have any of those strongly held things anymore. Like, I don't, I don't really believe in a particular religious worldview. I don't, um, I don't believe in a lot of supernatural stuff. I don't believe in Sasquatch. I don't believe in... The Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> Fighting words in Oregon. <laughs> Only a public radio crowd in Portland. Would that be the thing that... I just said that I don't believe effectively in Christianity. They were cool with that. No problemo. <laughs> but I called cryptozoology into question. And they're like, ah, nah. <laughs> I basically was like, I have no more true beliefs, which was kind of bumming me out. But then I remembered, oh, I have one true belief. And that is... I will go to my grave believing that sports jinxes are 100% a thing. Like, I will, if, if, if my baseball team, if the pitcher is pitching a no-hitter and one of the announcers on the radio has the temerity to say he's pitching a no-hitter, I know that the next thing that will happen is he will give up a home run. 
I have left a bar while watching a game because my friend said, we got this, and I had to find a wood surface to knock on. There was no wood at the bar? This was a very, very futuristic bar. Was it clean? <laughs> Maybe I had to go to the other part of the bar. I had to physically find some wood to knock on because inside of my brain, it was like, we will lose this game if I do not execute this plan within the next five seconds. So I guess I do have some true beliefs. Do you have anything like that, Passarello? That you're looking at me with what could only be called pity right now. No, no, do you, no, no. Is there anything like this for you that you know is not scientific, but, but you cling to it? When I was like 25 and I realized I had to be different at parties, like if I was getting older and I was getting a career and maybe I was going to work for an academic institution one day, I had to stop being like animal at parties <laughs> and just like Wait. run into the room, like throw everybody's hats out the window, which is something that I used to do at parties when I was in like my teens and 20s. Um, I had to find a new personality because I'm terrified of small talk, which is why it's great that I'm here. Yeah, what a job for you. <laughs> So I learned everything that I possibly could about horoscopes, not believing in them at all. Because if you think about horoscopes for more than five seconds, it's like not everybody that's born within three weeks of November has the exact same personality traits, right? But I learned all about it so that if I needed to talk to someone, we would have something to talk about and I could ask questions. And then sometimes I'd be so nervous, I would like forget the details of their star sign. So I would just like make things up like, oh yeah, Capricorns are the worst dressers in the Zodiac. That was like my go-to was they're the worst dressers. Did you ever in the tell Zodiac. a Capricorn that? Yeah, or anybody. So like, what's your star sign? What, when's your Taurus? birthday? Taurus? May, yeah, May yeah. birthday. Yeah, so I'd be like, oh, Taurians are the worst. By the way, the, Zodiac. the whole premise of this is that it's not real. And when I said Taurus, our technical director, Molly Pettit, said, yeah, he's a Taurus. Yeah. Aloud from the side of the stage. That, this, this is what I'm talking about. Like, this is the thing. Is like, you kind of are like, there's no way that this is actually true. It's just a fun way to sort people and talk through, you know, weird wine parties or whatever. But then you start kind of getting into it. And, and while you don't believe it, you do. Maybe it's just that all people can be shoved into whatever fun little box you put them in. I tried that for my first two marriages. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I'm surprised that... Not super successful. <laughs> no. No. I mean, that's such a Taurus I meant thing that, by the way, figuratively, not literally. If I had literally tried that, I would be in jail and not hosting Livewire, but... Yeah, that'd be bad. Um, we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater what's the biggest leap of faith they've ever taken, and they sort of passed those to the front of the room, which, by the way, is very apropos, Elena, with you being a professor as your other job. Uh, right. Do you want to share a couple of the leaps of faith that uh, our live audience has, has taken? Sure. Uh, this is from Peter. Peter said his biggest leap of faith that he's ever taken is putting my hand inside the most powerful nuclear reactor in the free world while it was operating in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. What? That's like the plot of Dune. <laughs> I assume that... <laughs> that, like, that's a thing they let you do. I love that the two most famous things about Oak Ridge, Tennessee are the Oak Ridge nuclear plant and the Oak Ridge Boys. Yeah. You sing that song? What if the Oak Ridge Boys was just a cover for some nuclear scientists that needed... Or what if the reason that guy from the Oak Ridge Boys sings that low is because he stuck his hand inside of the most powerful <laughs> nuclear reactor in the free world? Elvira. Elvira. Um, I played that song at my house voluntarily within the last two weeks, by the way. What? Just if you want to know how my life's going. <laughs> One more real quick. This is from Francis. I married my high school crush after not seeing her for 30 years, and then we joined Rajnisparam. <laughs> that is extremely germane to the radio show we have in store for you, because guess what? 
We actually have the guys who made the Netflix docu-series Wild Wild Country. Let's get them out here right now. Please welcome Chapman and McLean Wade to Livewire. Hello, welcome to Livewire. Hey, thanks for having yeah, us on. This is a blast. We're excited to be here. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, the series Wild Wild Country is just a huge hit everywhere, but I feel like it's an especially big hit in this part of the country. Yeah, this is our first time back in Portland since the series has come out, so it's been fantastic seeing everyone respond to it. Uh, the Netflix series really sort of documents uh, what happened when uh, this guy, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, moved from India to uh, an area near a town called Antelope, Oregon, and, uh, and kind of took over uh, the town. Let's talk first about Bhagwan. Why did people find him to be so compelling? Like, why did these true believers just give up everything to go be with this guy? Yeah, it was a question that we would ask, like, a lot of people who had been a part of the movement. And it was odd. Like, I think when we first started this, we were pretty dismissive of the movement to begin with. And uh, when we had talked to people... We've already though, established there are some former members here, <laughs> exactly. so let's so just try to be sensitive. keep it yeah. pretty friendly. <laughs> yeah, um, they had um, they had talked about it as being a pretty profound experience that they had had in their life, um, which as documentary filmmakers we were interested in. I mean, we got hooked into this story having never heard about it before. We grew up in Los Angeles in the 90s, so this was very, very far off our radar. And the way that we had gotten into it was we had made a documentary in 2014 about a baseball team that played here, and then we were licensing footage from the Oregon Historical Society, and a film archivist there kind of started mentioning about these pneumatic tapes that he had. There are 525 of them and hours of footage that had been kind of shot on the ranch. And he and another archivist and I were talking and started telling us kind of a little bit about the story and a little bit what you mentioned. It's like a town takeover and then they bust in 5,000 homeless people and try and take over the county and then they poison 750 people and it's the largest case of biochemical terrorism in the United States. And so I think, like, I was just shocked that I had never heard the story before. I was almost questioning them, like whether they had yeah. it right, and then just started quickly Googling around and just being astounded that all this stuff started checking off that had happened. I guess I'm still curious, uh, what was it about this oh. guy, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, that was so compelling? Because I have to say, in your, your Netflix docuseries, he's sort of a, you know, he's a pretty quiet, almost background figure. He's almost like the idea of a person, yeah, and think, yet people were giving up everything to go live on in this Rajneesh Puram commune. I think it's because he never blinked. If you see the footage <laughs> of him, it's pretty impressive, you know? Like, when I talk to my wife now and I want to get something from her, I just do the big eyes, <laughs> the hands. His hands were amazing. Like, if you study his hands, it's incredible the way he would talk, so, you know. Uh, yeah, but it, it was interesting. I think that, like... <laughs> I mean, you guys are brothers, right? I we feel are. like you guys are really taking different approaches to the seriousness of this issue. And that's fine. We that's play. what's we great. Play. That's yeah. what's great about having both of you on here. It was interesting. So I think Bogwan had done a couple things, which was, like, historically, I think this is kind of like Esalen was happening in, in Big Sur, California, and Berkeley. There was this big kind of... There's kind of this Eastern migration of seekers, of people who were, like, their words were there walking a path of enlightenment. And so they were going to India kind of on these spiritual trips. And Bhagwan, I think, was kind of one of the first that said, like, 
especially to people who were successful and especially to people who had accumulated a lot of a wealth in America, that's like, you don't need to reject that, which is what a lot of other gurus were saying. You don't need to reject money and wealth and sex and good food and wine. Like, you can reach enlightenment and have it all. So, understandably, I think that was, like, appealing to a lot, a lot of people yeah. as to, like, why they wanted to join. And so... I think what was really interesting is like the next thing that happened was India's had a lot of gurus, but America hasn't really had like a big guru that had, had that has come here and really like left a mark on the country and the world. I think Bhagwan kind of saw America as kind of the major leagues of kind of what he could come and really leave a, a powerful mark here. So they kind of start looking for land in America, and that's when they kind of arrived on your guys' doorsteps in yeah. 1981. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. We've got Elena Passarello here as well as Chad. Chapman and uh, McLean Way, uh, directors of the new Wild Wild Country docuseries on Netflix. Uh, we've got a quick break, and then we'll be right back with more Livewire. Stay with us. Livewire is supported in part by Foley. Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? Truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy, now we'd like to tell you about Foley, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a Foley TikTok stool when I am recording these messages, and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully, desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI, coming to you this week from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello and Chapman and McLean Way, the uh, directors of Wild Wild Country, the new Netflix docuseries about the uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh movement, which came right here to the state of Oregon in, in the 80s. Um, who were the Rajneeshis? You, you mentioned that uh, they, were, they were people who found the message of enlightenment, but with material comfort to be appealing. Like, this was a $110 million operation. Where was the money coming from, and who were the people flocking here? Yeah, the money kind of came from a couple different sources. Obviously, these were a lot of, like, highly successful, highly educated followers who uh, donated a lot of money to join this movement and build this utopia. Um, also, the guru had a, a very successful publishing business and book business and put his discourses on tapes and sold them across the world. And um, so I think it was a, a combination of the, the money from the followers as well as their kind of uh, business savvy. Yeah, I think one of the things that came across kind of in talking to people who had joined the movement was kind of like the deeply religious backgrounds that they said that they were brought up with. So in some ways, it was, I think, for some, almost like a substitution of, of faith and, and devotion. 
devotion that they had. I, I didn't get the sense that there were a lot of people, like, like we kind of grew up not really being that spiritual or religious, and I think that kind of helped us in making the documentary series. Um, you know, I think, like, there was one character that I spoke to that talked about how she was in the Vatican, and she remembers the Pope driving by in kind of like the 1970s version of what the Pope-mobile was, and how that was, like, identical to what her religious ecstasy experience was when she saw Bhagwan drive by in a Rolls Royce. I mean, for her, it was identical. She would tell stories of, like, her sister became a nun and how her family reacted to that. And she said, you know, my sister changed her name, wore all black robes, and put a cross around her neck. And I changed my name to Ma Shanti Bhadra, and I put on orange clothes, and I put a mall around my neck. So I think that for some people, it was a substitution of some sort. Uh, you guys take a pretty even-handed approach uh, to, I think, not really describing it as a cult. And I know that's a, a somewhat, for people that were, were part of that movement, that's a somewhat loaded term. Um, I also was curious to see that the ex-members, or the, I mean, maybe still somewhat current members of that movement, none of the people in your film, or at least few of them, seemed put off by the experience. They seemed to be reflect on it as a really important part of their life. Do you think it was a cult? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think that we were definitely interested in kind of examining the story, you know, it happened just two years after Jonestown. And so cult hysteria was kind of sweeping the nation. And anything that wasn't Christian was kind of being put into this cult box. And, um, you know, there's, cults are wildly different in their own belief systems and, and, and what they believe in. And I think that we showed a couple different perspectives. Someone like Jane, who's the Australian woman, um, you know, who had plans to assassinate the assistant uh, U.S. attorney. Um, you know, she believes that she was part of a destructive cult that, that, that did, uh, you know, bad things. A lot of other members see this as like one of the most profound experiences they had in their life still to this day um, and take offense at, at, you know, this being termed. A cult. Yeah, I mean, I think it was like definitely one of the central questions that we were playing with in the series or that we were interested in exploring with. And I think on service level, we knew what attracted us to the story so much was like, how does this peace loving group that talks about like yoga and meditation and that was their goal was to build this utopian paradise. And how do certain members of this group end up becoming responsible for the largest case of biochemical terrorism in the United States? When did this really start to turn? When did this story become sinister? Yeah, I think kind of the first, what we found in our research was there was this huge land use battle that involved the Thousand Friends of Oregon, which is a well-known prominent environmental law group um, out here in Oregon. And, you know, the Roshnishis felt like we've invested $120 million in our town. We're 19 miles from the nearest city. We're not bothering anyone. Uh, we should be allowed to build what we want to build out here. Um, and the other side was saying, no, we're going to come in with bulldozers and we're going to, you know, destroy these buildings. And I think that was kind of like the first uh, line in the sand that was drawn. And from that point on, you just see these, you know, these two groups kind of just become more entrenched in, in their own beliefs. Yeah, and it was almost like, I think, Sheila in particular as let's, kind of a Let's talk about her, Ma'anan Sheila. Ma'anan Sheila. She was sort of the Bhagwan's uh, voice to the outside world because he would take a vow of silence at times and things like that. Uh, and, and she was the one who really perpetrated and sort of seemed to have orchestrated some pretty not okay stuff. She's in Switzerland. Is she still wanted in the U.S.? What's her legal status? Yeah, it's a really it's really complex, but I'll try and give you the, the basics, which is that basically Sheila and a lot of Roshanishi served time for state crimes. Sheila never was prosecuted with her federal crimes, which was kind of more of the attempted murders and the things like that. We weren't able to get into it in the, in, 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 in the documentary too much, but this is 100% real, is that she painted the one of the interior rooms of the prison and got credited 30 days early of her state prison sentence 
She gets out, takes a flight to Switzerland. She married a former Swiss sannyasin, so she has Swiss citizenship today. But like the federal government never was able to have the opportunity to bring the basically the Charles Turner murder assassination attempt against her. So she never served crime for that. She's like legally allowed to live in Switzerland, but travel outside of Switzerland is pretty much restricted for her. Which of the plots was she specifically responsible for? She pled guilty to a wide range of things, but <laughs> mostly the thing that they definitely had was they tried to kill Bhagwan's doctor on the ranch, but they also kind of pled guilty to mostly the salmonella poisonings in Wasco County too. Why did, they, why did the poisoning go down? So basically, it was a two-prong attempt to take over the Wasco County in 1984. On one prong, they had this plan, which they executed, to bus in as many homeless people as they possibly could into the state. And so, Oregon... By the way, quick aside, I was out with some friends last night, and a buddy of mine, Roden, said, oh yeah, it was the 80s, and we hadn't seen my Uncle Gary in years, <laughs> and my dad was watching the news in Seattle and was no like, way. there's Gary. Yeah. He was one of the homeless yeah. people. Yeah, they called them street people back then, which, I don't know, is a harsh term to me, but they were like, yeah, we're going to bus in all these street people. Um, so they sent Greyhound buses to like 20, 25 major American cities. Um, and Oregon at that time, I don't know what it is today, but it was 20 days. If you intended to live in the state of Oregon and you had lived in it 20 days before the election, you could register to vote. And so that was part of their plan, which was to bolster their numbers. The other plan was to suppress the vote, which was um, to, they took salmonella culture and they sprinkled it in 10 different restaurants. 751 people dined out in the Dalles and got sick with, no one died, but it was salmonella poisoning. Have you been surprised at how much of a sensation your, your series on Netflix, Wild Wild Country, has been? I mean, I feel like it's it's really fascinating all of yeah. America right now. It's kind of like this niche socio-political thriller, but it's like playing like a Marvel movie, you know? <laughs> so I was like, we thought it was going to have a very small audience, but um, I think it seems to be tapping into a lot of issues today. Um, that That's what I was wondering about. Do you feel like we're in a particular moment as a nation where this, for some reason, is extra compelling? Yeah, we always joke around that. To us, the story of Rajneesh Perman in some ways is like comforting because it's like we did survive this, and it's like maybe every generation goes through something that just like, <laughs> <laughs> rattles them to their core right. and I feel like maybe that's the situation we're in right now it's like we'll, we'll every generation it. gets an oddball in a fancy car who has a weird <laughs> sway over people that can't be explained <laughs> Chapman and McLean Way everybody the series on Netflix is Wild Wild Country Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. This is Livewire from PRI. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Luke Burbank and Elena Passarello here with all of you. You know, here on Livewire, we like to bring on all kinds of interesting guests from all over the country. Uh, but of course, Portland itself is full of all kinds of fascinating people. And we like to meet those people in a segment that we call New Fascinating Friend. Let's talk to one right now. Please welcome Raleigh Schweinfurth to Livewire.
Raleigh, welcome to Livewire. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, all right, you have actually done so many fascinating things. I don't know where to start. I've been reading up on you, but let's go back five years. You were in eighth grade, and you were, <laughs> you were walking through a parking lot, and you noticed like a ton, like 50,000 dead bees. What did you do next? Um, well, after the mass bee die-offs that happened in 2013, I collected honeys from around the areas where these bees had died, um, and I did some independent science research, and over the past few years, I figured out that I could actually detect the insecticide that was responsible for killing the bees in honey and soil, and I also, if you cultivate greenery and bacteria, I figured out you can use that to remove this compound from the environment. <laughs> How old are you? I'm 18. I, I have done nothing with my life. Did you, like, did, how did, did you know how to do this kind of science when you, when you set out to try to save these bees? I actually did not know what I was doing at all. So actually this was a big thing that I started and I figured out over the course of this um, process of how to do these things. So at first, um, I really had no idea what I was doing. I collected the honeys, but eventually I've been able to figure it out over time. And like just trial and error and like <laughs> going online? Did you do this on Snapchat? Like how did this, no. how did you, no, no, that's a no. thing, right? Is that still a thing? <laughs> So I don't have one, but um, no. This is why you're saving the bees of America, because you're not on Snapchat like my daughter. Uh, also, uh, you ended up in a, in a sort of science contest, right? You won $40,000 for this? Yes, I did. What are you spending that on? Uh, college tuition. Um. Okay, that's like enough for one lifetime. You saved bees, but that's not the only thing. You are also a renowned keyboardist. Yes, I what, play the piano and as well as the celesta and the harpsichord. And the celesta, in case you haven't heard of it, it's a smaller keyboard instrument where the hammer strikes steel plates, so it creates this ethereal bell sound. It's the instrument that used for Hedwig's theme in the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> are you from Westworld? <laughs> like you're 100% a real human, right? Yes. Okay. I have I to believe so. you. <laughs> oh, that raises a good question, right? I mean, what if none of us are, but we don't know it? I was definitely like the early version that had a lot of bugs. <laughs> I feel like you're V7 or something. Raleigh, do you have a favorite bee of all the bees and the honeys that you collected? Is there a species or a subspecies of bee that really grills your cheese or that you think or that you think is the bee's knees I don't know I think all bees are really important because they're so important to the future of Earth's agricultural food supply and so any bee that I can help I'm glad to do anything to help save the bees Raleigh Schweinfurth everybody our new fascinating friend Let me tell you about our next guest. Ahmed Barucha is just another one of those half Irish Catholic, half Pakistani, Indian, Burmese, Muslim comedians you've been seeing so much of on TV lately. 
He's performed on Conan, Comedy Central, and a bunch of other places, and now he is here with us, which we are so excited about. Please welcome the hilarious Ahmed Baruch at a live wire. Good to be here. Good to be out of the house. I just had a baby. Just had a baby. Thank you. Thank you. So I probably shouldn't be here right now. Uh, gotta go soon. Uh, my wife doesn't know I left. <laughs> I was excited to have a baby. I love babies. I like babies because all you gotta do is make a weird face at them and then they're your friends. Like I wish we could do that as adults. You know, just see like a cool guy at the gym working out and you're just like, and he's just like, who's this guy? <laughs> I like your hair. Let me see your keys. <laughs> Recently outside of my house, I had a bunch of crows, 20, 30 crows all in one tree, cawing nonstop for about two days straight. Just like, all day long, nonstop, all 20, 30 crows at once, just shaking the tree. So finally, I called animal control and I was like, hey, what the hell is going on with these birds? They said it's baby crow season. They're calling it the baby crows until they learn to fly, and that can last up to five days. I said, what? That's the crow flight training program? <laughs> That's how you teach the gift of flight? Just fly, 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 And it works. Five days they were gone. Try it home on your kids. Just learned how to fly out of spite. All right, get off my back. I'll fly. We've taken it too far with cows. We kill them, we eat them, we wear them. That's on par with most animals. But with cows, we also eat veal, which are their children. Then we drink their milk, which doesn't sound as bad, but it's the milk intended for their children we ate. We eat their babies, and then we eat their babies' food with cookies. Just dunking cookies in there. Oh, just a midnight snack. But then, on top of all of that, we take pictures of our missing children... Put it on their milk. <laughs> hey, sorry for killing your kid. Haven't seen my kid, though, have you? Really worried about my kid. Your kid's dead. Ate him. Washed him down with his own food. Keep a lookout for my kid. My dad's Muslim. My mom's Catholic, so I'm neither. We, I was mostly raised Catholic, but we didn't eat pork for my dad. Which was confusing as a kid, you know, I was like, what's your mom's religion? Oh, there's a guy who's nailed to a cross, and here's a bunch of sins you can't do. Uh, what's dad's religion? Oh, just don't eat pork. <laughs> don't eat pork, you'll be fine. <laughs> I'm going to do that one. That one sounds easy. 
I did it for most of my life. I didn't eat pork until college, you know, where most people are experimenting with drugs and their sexuality. I was like, what's this bacon all about? <laughs> Let's check this out. Uh, my dad's a good dad. He'll do anything for his kids. But it always ends up backfiring on him because we know he's there to save us. We act more irresponsibly. Then he gets mad at us for that's a vicious cycle, especially my little sister. She's the baby. He'll do anything for her. Recently, she was driving her car in Massachusetts, a state over from where my parents live in Rhode Island, and her car starts breaking down. And her first instinct is just call my dad and go, Dad, my car's breaking down. It's in Massachusetts. I gotta go to work. Can you go get it? And he just goes, okay, just does it, does anything for us, goes all the way there, takes a cab to a bus, another bus, another cab, he gets there, the door's locked. <laughs> she forgot to leave the door open, he has a temper, he calls her at work, she has to get pinged at work, it's embarrassing, he's like, boom, Monica, your dad's on line one, he's like, what are you doing, you let the car, in the car, I let the car, he's like, I didn't let the car, he's like, you let the car, I can't get in, he hangs up the phone, calls his tow truck buddy, because just has weird friends everywhere, because <laughs> he's a dad, <laughs> Dads always have like a few weird friends, you know, like they knew him before they met mom, then mom's like, uh, you gotta get rid of that guy. <laughs> but he's cool about it, he's like, nah, I'm weird, you got kids, I'll be over here. <laughs> Call me if you need me. <laughs> so the guy comes, unlocks the door, when the door opens, poof, a waft of pot smoke billows out of the car. He's Muslim, he doesn't even drink, he looks down, there's a bong laying on the driver's seat. A bong? Like, what are you, a cartoon character? Like, who's smoking a bong and driving? Like, how high are you trying to get? <laughs> like, get a joint, be responsible, have a hand free. Grow up. <laughs> so my dad calls my mom, he's like, she's a pothead, I knew it, she's a pothead. My mom calls my sister, it's like, Monica, your mom's on line one. She's like, what are you doing? Dad's going crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. She hangs up the phone. My dad tows the car all the way back to Rhode Island. He looks at the car and he realizes that's not her car. <laughs> Just towed some stranger's car. Towed some pothead's car. And it wasn't even on the side of the road, it was in their driveway. <laughs> this took a car out of a driveway. <laughs> yeah, I'm just leaving my car in a driveway in Massachusetts. This poor pothead just comes out of their house and they're just like, oh crap. Where did I just go on an adventure looking for their car? Thought I had a car. Did I have a car? My mom starts freaking out. She's like, this is a federal offense. You took a car over state line. So she made my dad call the cops and he's like, hello, I'd like to report a car theft. It was me, I stole the car. I'm sorry, I'm bringing it back. And then he just put it back in the driveway and left. It's like, this poor pothead just gets back from their adventure, and they're just like, the driveway. <laughs> Should have checked the driveway. <laughs> it's always the last place you look. <laughs> hey, you guys have been fantastic. Thank you very much. 
I'm at Barucha. All right, our next guest here on Livewire knows all about true belief and how it can really upend your life. Her new book is The Kevin Show, and it tells the story of Olympic athlete Kevin Hall and his battle with a mental illness that caused him to believe that he is, in fact, starring in his own reality show all the time. Please welcome Mary Pallon to Livewire. Hi, Mary. Welcome to Livewire. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Um, how did you first hear about Kevin Hall, the subject of uh, your new book? Totally by accident. Um, this was in 2014. I was writing about sports at the New York Times, and a colleague walked by my desk and said he had heard about this thing called the Truman Show Disorder, and that one of the um, examples in it was a real-life person. And on the sports desk at the Times, for better or for worse, I had kind of carved out this niche in writing these offbeat stories or dealing with like kind of the really extreme crazies, to put it another way. And believe it or not, there's a lot of them in sports. Um, and, I believe it. I'm a sports fan. <laughs> and also, I, um, my mother was a psychologist working in Eugene, Oregon, uh, where I was born and raised. And so I've always been interested in psychology. I, these terms were around in my house a lot, but I had never, I did like what a lot of kids do. And I went to college and I was like, I'm not going to take a single psych class. And then I realized I like, what is journalism if not getting paid to listen to people talk about what's wrong in the world? So I reached out on a whim to Kevin and just said, like, hey, you know, I and I'd covered um, the Olympics and all these big sporting events. And, you know, there's a lot you don't see on TV or in the news. And I was just so curious. Anytime I can talk to somebody who's done this kind of insane endeavor of, you know, competing every four years, sometimes in a matter of seconds, that's like the job. I, I you know, every one of them has taught me something. So I reached out and I was like, hey, you know, you, do you want to talk? And it just kind of took off from there. Uh, this guy, Kevin Hall, uh, was an amazing sailor and was uh, part of uh, the Olympics. He represented the U.S. Correct. In, in sailing. Uh, but he also, as, as we've sort of alluded to, uh, battled mental illness. When did he first start to think he was in a reality show being being directed by this person who he describes as the director? So Kevin's first episode was in 1989. Uh, he was a junior at Brown. He was a, a really amazing sailor on their collegiate team. And what's interesting to me about that is it's obviously before the film The Truman Show came out, which was in 1998, and way before these two gentlemen, doctors Ian and Joel Gold, had coined this term. So this idea of feeling like you're within a show within a show, this goes back to Hamlet. I mean, this has been going on for a long time, but one of the things... By the way, that character's last name in the movie is Burbank, <laughs> which has not helped me. <laughs> Well, fight those feelings. Totally. And I think that, you know, in the arc of reporting this book, I started looking at people with their smartphones and thinking like, oh my God, I think we all have a version of this. I mean, social media, we're all our own publicists now. We're all filming each other. Sometimes we're so obsessed with filming things that we forget life itself, like what we're supposed to be experiencing. At least we haven't gotten to the point where a reality star is president. When that happens, no, God, no, that's no, no. when we know we no, have hit no. some kind of... That's just, that's so, that was my major question was, when did the election happen when you were putting this project together? The like, worst possible time, <laughs> right before your well, deadline. I mean, I guess, or the best possible time, right? Because it, the book feels very, uh, it feels extremely relevant right now to sort of yeah. the world that we live in. I mean, we are, uh, all, to some degree, many of us are living in our own mini reality show. I know that my relationship with social media has been, has been complicated. I got a, a, a text from my wife who's in another city 
uh, she's, I'm wearing a tuxedo right now for the radio audience. She said, you look nice in the tux. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she, someone had put a picture of me online during this show in the tuxedo. She is at our house with our dog looking at me in the tuxedo. And I don't even understand how that's happening. So it's, it's, it's not an um, unlikely outcome that people would seem to develop this particular brand. It's bipolar, right, is the, is so, the sort yes. of foundational um, issue? You can have bipolar disorder and not have Truman Show delusion. This is to describe the manic highs in which you think you're the star of a reality TV show. And from the outset, I was really interested in Kevin's story because he's one of the first known cases of, like, a pseudo-public figure who's had this. I mean, he has been televised internationally at the Olympics. He, if you Google him, stuff does come up about his sailing results. And he was told he was the center of the world because he was an Olympic athlete. And so for him, that line of like what was real and what wasn't, long before social media was, was a big question and something I was really interested in reporting out. What did that look like in his, and what does it look like in his day-to-day life? I mean, when he's in the mania and he thinks the director is telling him to basically, uh, you know, create uh, interesting footage for this show. Well, it's kind of, I mean, the term episode here is kind of a double entendre because he's having a manic episode. So it kind of has a beginning, middle, and end. And then when he's not manic, he can like look back on it the way that sometimes people would talk about a drug trip or something. They'll say, I know this was crazy and I know the walls weren't actually spinning, but that's what it felt like then. Um, in terms of his day-to-day life, you know, he's married, he has three kids, and I, th- and I talk to a lot of people who have this, not just him, who aren't, aren't re- mentioned in the book, and they talk about, you know, the, the term bipolar is kind of the extremes of the human experience, right? Like, most people will be happy and sad, but with, you don't know if you're spinning up into a mania or plunging down into a low, and he and his wife have a checklist of signs. Yeah, I, I actually included this in my notes because it's oh, wow. fascinating to me. Uh, he is he's the, the checklist that is to indicate to his wife that he may be slipping into th- this particular mania is if I want more music on in the house than normal, if I sing passionately and better than normal, which, by the way, <laughs> mild upside, he actually sings better than normal, possibly, when this is going on, if I'm chattier than normal, if I am more interested in other people than normal, if I am more interested in sex than normal, if I am more interested in my appearance than normal, and if I feel like everything is going to work out okay. (laughs) It means I'm in the delusion. Right, and I I just feel like for all of us, that would be really hard. Yeah, I mean, I'm five out of six on those. (laughs) Like right now. And the Burbank thing. So. I mean, it's right. a, yeah. And I, again, <laughs> yeah. I don't mean to make light of his condition, but I, I mean, it's, a, it's sad to read these because some of these, and I guess this is one of the truly frustrating parts about bipolar swings, there are elements of mania. I mean, he says he feels like everything's going to work out okay. So there are positives to it, but the overall negatives are so profound that obviously it's hard to live this way. And I think that that's true with a lot of mental illnesses is I think it's very tempting to look at these things as black or white. You have this or you have that. Um, But the truth is that the world is pretty gray, right? And I really wanted to write a book about that because I felt like a lot of athlete biographies particularly are really terrible. Like they're really like these formulaic, sepia-toned, like Ripley muscle, like narratives. It turned out that they gave it 100%. Yeah. (laughs) Spoiler alert. And, Most athlete memoirs. And what you see when you go to the Olympics or one of these events is that, by definition, most people don't win. You know, there's one, two, and three, and then everybody else, it's like you get back on the plane, and the small talk for the rest of your life is not, oh my gosh, it's extraordinary, you're one of the best people in the world at doing what you're doing, it's how'd you do at the Olympics, and you're like, oh, 11th, you know, or it's, so that achievement model is like so, so narrow, and you know, you layer in something like a mental mental illness and it becomes enormously complicated. 
Uh, we need to take a very quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk more with Mary Pallon. Her new book is The Kevin Show. This is Livewire Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Luke. Special thanks this episode to Sharon Gavin of King City, Oregon, and Emily Pedersen of Portland, Oregon. Sharon and Emily are part of the Livewire member community. We call it our League of Extraordinary Listeners. And they are generously supporting Livewire with a donation each month, which is making this whole thing possible. We want to thank them so much for their support. Sharon and Emily, thank you for making this show possible week in and week out. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. Elena Passarello is right over there. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We're talking to Mary Pallon. Her new book is The Kevin Show. It details uh, former U.S. Olympian Kevin Hall and his mental illness uh, that has led him to believe he's inside a reality show uh, for much of his life. So, you know, he's, he's able to live a, a life with his family. He has kids. He's on medication. Uh, does the medication work? Is he able to control this to the point where he can live a somewhat normal life? That's a great question. He was off and on meds, and that ended up becoming a huge point of tension between him and his father. And the medication has changed a lot since 1989, but it's still an imperfect science. With Kevin, there was a lot of ups and downs, and um, he, he would go off his meds very suddenly. So it became really hard for him to look back at stuff and say, what was caused by, if anything, meds? What was caused by the delusion? What was caused by with a sudden withdrawal? Um, and what I thought was really interesting about that, too, is with an athlete, your body is your job. You know, it's that, the margin of error is so narrow. And the very same things that were causing him problems personally with this disorder were also some of the things that made him a great sailor. He actually made his Olympic team off medication, and then he had periods where the meds were really helpful. So it becomes really, really hard. And also, I just thought it was so interesting that a lot of these, I interviewed him and a lot of his teammates, and the way they deal with anxiety is so different, that you would think performing your sport in front of billions of people would be really hard. He actually felt really at home. And so there were times when, when he actually was being watched where he felt really grounded and connected and like he was doing the thing he was best at. Was that because he had been experiencing the the delusion of being in the reality show so that uniquely prepared him to actually be having a bunch of people pay attention to him? I think it's kind of like a lot of stuff. There's stuff we do by muscle memory. I mean, most athletes, when you watch them at the Olympics... I can't even describe how many times they've done the thing you're about to see. And the whole idea, and really good coaches and trainers understand this, is that you're, you want people to not think once they get on the stage. Like one of my favorite moments at the Olympics that probably nobody noticed is that before like Lori Hernandez or any of the gymnasts get on you know, the beam or to do their floor routine, um, they do this little thing where they go, I got this. She, she whispered, I got this into the <laughs> microphone for the... Uh... Radio audience. Yeah, yeah, I got this. And it just, I just find stuff like that so endearing because what they're doing is they're just bringing it back to the way they've done it at the gym a million times. I Have you considered integrating that into your life as a writer, Mary Pallon? <laughs> I got this. It's a lot less exciting when it's like me at my laptop and my computer and my jammies. But yeah, exactly. It's exactly like the Olympics. Yes, let's go with that. Speaking of writing, you knew nothing about sailing before you started the project and right. also uh, writing about psychology and mental illness wasn't your, your main beat. Right. Well, but I'd seen a lot of crazy. I'd covered sports <laughs> in Wall Street. So I felt very oddly comfortable with the subject matter because I felt like I'd, I understood the Olympics and I'd 
the, the really intense pressure of what these athletes were going through because I'd interviewed so many of them. And I understood the mental illness piece because I also saw my mom care deeply about her patients, that these were human beings. So Kevin also had cancer, and he always talks about how when you're in a cancer ward, not that cancer's easy, it's awful, but people send flowers, they come over with casseroles, they kind of go into a support mode. When you tell someone that you're, you know, in a psych ward, it makes people really uncomfortable. And in the, you know, 10 to 15-ish times that Kevin was institutionalized, he told me he saw one person receive flowers wow. that entire time. And I took for granted growing up that that wasn't, not only was it not spooky, it was like my mom's patients were calling the house, like it was just like a thing. And I think when, you know, we step back at this, like listening and supporting people in a very basic way, I think that the role of a journalist is like, you can't save the world, you can't create the policy, you can't cure everything, but you can get people talking. That's, you're, you're saying like, look over here, look at this thing. And I think when we start doing that, we can start having even bigger and more exciting conversations about what solutions look like. Mary Pallon, everyone. The new book is The Kevin Show, right here on Livewire. Mary, thank you so much. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We're coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, and uh, we're talking about some true beliefs this hour. If Hawaiian soul music sounds like an oxymoron, wait till you hear our musical guest this hour. Uh, he might have invented the genre, and you are about to find out that it's amazing. His latest album is Soul Street. Please welcome Ron Artiste II and the truth to Livewire. Welcome to Livewire, man. What song are we going to hear? We're going to play a song for you guys from our newest album. And the album's called Soul Street. This song we're going to share with you is called Searching for Answers. I mean, it's something I think we all do through our lifetime, whether we admit it or not. Uh, <laughs> uh, we are happy to admit that on the show. And we are happy to have you here. It's Ron Artiste II and The Truth here on Livewire. Aloha, everybody. Hope you guys enjoy this one. This world is tearing at me Trying hard to change who I am And to who they wanted me to be Oh, I'm searching for answers Sometimes 
Every day we rise Trying to see the love inside you so much. Riley Paakaula, Stevan Artis. That's Ron Artis the second and the truth. We want to thank and bid a very fond farewell this week to our show's co-founder and the heart and soul of Livewire for 15 years, Robin Tenenbaum. Robin, we love you. You have worked hard, Robin. Go celebrate by eating all the potatoes you want. You've earned it. Thanks this week to our guests, Chapman and McLean Way, Mary Pallon, Ahmed Barucha, Raleigh Schweinfurt, and Ron Ortiz II and the Truth. Livewire is brought to you by Alaska Airlines and Fully. Laura Hatton is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. Tim Harkins is our operations director. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Chris Doty. Elena Passarello, that's our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound by Kyle Woodrow. Our editor mixed by Jason Powers. Thanks also to Carlson Audio. Additional funding by the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Mary L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was co-created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by support from our members. Our thanks this week to member Toby Fitch of Portland, Oregon. I know him. More information about our show can be found at livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. PRI, Public Radio International. 
Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 